Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. Most of us are recording today from Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Show Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Girl Who Was Convinced Beyond All Reason That She Could Fly by Sybil Lamb. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill. Across the screen for me is... Hi, my name is Trevor, and I am convinced beyond all reason that I'm the branch head of the Louis Rail Library. And across the screen for me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of Millennium Library. And across the screen for me is our very special guest. Hello, I am Casey Plett. I am a writer, publisher, and a teacher. I live between New York City and Windsor, and Windsor is where I am talking to you from right now, also known as the traditional lands of the Three Fires Confederacy, the lands of the Ojibwa, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary day, yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone, close the doors and turn off the phone, cause all I And you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. Tell us your thoughts about the books we're reading, books we should read, and perhaps your latest flight of fancy. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. But before all of that, we should probably introduce our special guest, Casey Plett. Casey was born in Winnipeg, grew up in Morden, went to high school and college in Oregon, graduate school in New York, and now lives in Windsor, Ontario. She has written about her gender transition in a series of columns on McSweeney's internet tendency. Her novel, Little Fish, won the Amazon.ca First Novel Award and the Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Fiction. Her short story collection, A Dream of a Woman, was nominated for the Giller Prize. Welcome to the show, Casey. Hi, Dennis. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Okay, um, so Sybil Lamb. This one was a bit tricky. There's not a lot of straightforward biographical information about Sybil Lamb out there. It's a little hard to get a clear timeline on some of her writing. She's written um, zines and web comics, which kind of exist outside of like the traditional publishing mechanism. She also has several aliases, so I've done my best to cobble this together with what is out there. I think it gives a good general overview of her work. So I do want to I mean, just I start out. Tons. I can, I can okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So Casey can can fill us in on anything that we might not know. So I did want to start with this bio artist statement from her Patreon. So it says. Sybil Lamb has worked for over a decade as a self-styled underground documentarian of the rare and beautiful characters of underground and edge culture, the recording angel of a particular milieu. Her detail-obsessed scenes and hyper-articulated portraits collect stories and characters from all around North America to document the lives and cultures of nomadic squatter punks, the many facets of historic yet evolving extremes of trans culture, and the modern artists and inventors underground. Like a dream about what happened just before you fell asleep, Lamb is at once familiar yet somehow more, invoking the viewer on multiple levels with a recognizable yet otherly visual semantics. Her detail-obsessed narrative genre scenes told in a high-resolution vision of high contrast over saturated color contrast her chaotic, elusive, and gritty subject matter. 
Thusly, Lamb uses her studio method to turn unlikely people and settings into something in between cartoons, diagrams, and graphic design. Upon pursuing any number of Lamb's deeply imaginistic images, it becomes evident that there is a highly personalized, coded, richly woven tapestry mythos of girls, demons, punks, robots, spare parts, and clues hidden in trash. <laughs> um, so, like I said, not a lot of biographical information out there about Simba Lamb. Um, she did study drawing at Concordia University in Montreal from 1998 to 2000. She's quite an accomplished artist and has had many exhibitions of her art all over Ontario, Quebec, and New Orleans. Um, she lived in New Orleans from 2005 to 2008, and this was kind of the only straightforward biographical information I could find about her um, is from a Vice article where she talks about her time in New Orleans where she was actually attacked and beat with a pipe which left her mm. with um, a serious head injury that required emergency surgery and left her with some brain damage. She writes about this experience in her graphic memoir I've Got a Time Bomb which was published in 2014. She's written many webcomics and zines, including The Little Girl Lost Show, and has appeared in several anthologies, including 2017's Meanwhile Elsewhere, Science Fiction and Fantasy from Transgender Writers. She published The Girl Who Was Convinced Beyond All Reason That She Could Fly in 2020, the sequel, The Girl Who Could Kind of Turn Invisible versus The Girl Who Might Not Even Actually Be There, came out last year and is available for purchase on her website. Her serialized Patreon trisexual adventure crime love story, Molly and Pixie Be Gay and Do Crimes, was published in February of this year. So there we go. That's what I could find about Sybil Lamb. Is there anything you would want to add to that, Casey? I mean, that kind of does it does it pretty much right there. She is very, I think, sort of very beloved in a very particular kind of like underground queer trans artist sort of venue. I mean, I think uh, this book, The Girl Who's Convinced Beyond All Reason She Could Fly, is the only book that has been out there in sort of like normal distribution that you can get on traditional book channels. I toured with her for her novel, I Got a Time Bomb in 2014. And it was, she was, again, she is like, I think that calling her an underground or an outsider artist is very appropriate. There's people who've known her work for decades going on now in a very particular sort of outsider queer art spectrum. And I find this book so interesting because, you know, it's a YA novel for one, and it's very sort of different from a lot of her other work. And yet I find it kind of like as moving and magical and strange as all the rest of her stuff. Does that, does that help at all? Yeah, yes. that's great. Yeah. And I like yeah. your comment about her being very popular in this underground way, because like I can I can see that, you know, like she has these blogs and these projects that people are very much aware about, but are... Mm -hmm not hard to find, but they're just, they're, they're underground, as you said. Yeah. I thought I would just give a brief summary for our listeners who may not have had a chance to read the book yet. And I took this summary from the Goodreads website because I thought it was concise and gives us a bit of an idea of what this uh, book is about. So in a rusted, unnamed city full of $5 hotels and flea markets, a young homeless girl named Eggs is trying to make her way in the world. She's shy and bold at the same time and wary of strangers, but she's convinced beyond all reason that she can fly. And fly she does. From rooftop to rooftop, from chimneys to phone wires, she scurries up the sides of buildings and sneaks into secret lairs. Eggs is a loner, but she makes two friends. Grack, who sells a hundred different kinds of hot dogs from his bicycle cart, and Splendid Wren, a punk rocker whose open window eggs came crashing through one night. 
Both Grack and Splendid Wren try their best to protect her, but Eggs meets her match when on a cold night she swoops onto a rooftop and steals a warm jacket belonging to Robin, a neighborhood baddie with anger management issues. Can Eggs elude his wrathful revenge? Beguiling and otherworldly, the girl who is convinced beyond all reason that she could fly is a fevered dream about a young girl's flights of fancy in order to survive and to thrive. So how did you guys find the book? I know Sybil, so I was sort of aware this is a project that she had been working on for some time. I had seen her, she would post kind of stuff online. This began actually as a Facebook post, I remember, where she posted this long sort of post idea about these characters. And then eventually they 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 grew in this graphic, this graphic novel came around. But I learned about it when it was sort of in its infancy about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I've now, now see it as, you know, as a full book is very, uh, is very satisfying. But yeah, I learned about it when I was touring with her. And at the risk of using another bird analogy, I found this book very difficult to pigeonhole. You know, ah, very uh, nice, very nice. You know, it's 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 a graphic novel, and yet it's also not a traditional graphic novel in that there are pictures and text separate. It's YA, but I also feel like the audience is not limited to YA. Even the uh, the size of the Definitely. book is not your traditional. It's not it's not a, a mass market. It's not a hardcover. It's sort of so and, and so and thinking about finding it hard to describe what it is also made me think, well, maybe that's part of the point. Maybe it's a, it's OK if it's something that we can't put a label on or or we can't sort of just uh, squirrel away or easily define it's it's a thing. It's a it's a piece of art that exists and, and we all are going to respond to it like we do to any piece of art. And and that's fine. I remember one of the reviews I read described it as like a fable and I was like kind of has a fableish feel and then I was like well I had to look up the definition of fable again and it referred to fables as the story is normally told about animals I was like well this is people but also they're all named for animals so it kind of is a fable but not quite but it has a very much a feel of it yeah absolutely with most of the books we read, I often end up reading them a little later in the month and then kind of scramble for the last week. So this month I thought, well, I'm going to read this one early. And I didn't realize how short it was because uh, it ended up taking me about an hour to read the first time. And I did that while in the parking lot waiting for my wife while she was shopping. So it was a quick read. It was interesting and different because it touched kind of on different things like being a part fable, part story, part graphic novel. I think with a fable, though, there's usually a moral. And so I was I was struggling to find the moral here. You know, I think it could maybe go in several different directions. It's not clear cut. I mean, Eggs is convinced she can fly and other people not so much. And is it, you know, sort of doing what you believe you can do, even if you're doubted? I mean, I don't know. I kind of felt like if there was a moral, it's that we often run into people and they aren't what we expect. And I'll say the best way to interact with people is usually to take them as they are, except how they see themselves. Like I know some people that have ideas about the world that uh, don't quite align with my ideas about the world, but it's how they see the world and how they function in it. And if you can reach people on their own level and their own perception, it makes for an easier connection. 
maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I like what you said there about a fable, because I think that there's some degree to which this book has a fable about either letting other people take care of you or understanding that there are some people who are not going to let themselves be taken care of. You know, where the book ends, I think, is this degree of which, like, we couldn't take care of this person, but hopefully maybe she is somewhere else where now she's a little more able to be cared for or looked after in a way that we can for her, you know? I think that, and I like what you said, Trevor, I think it was you, about this book as an object being something sort of different. Like, it's YA, but it's kind of not. It's a graphic novel, but it's kind of not. And it, it sort of feels like a whole other out of existence, which also goes with the fable thing. Like you said, like they're named after animals, but they're not. It's kind of in our human reality, but it's not. I mean, with this person who can fly, convinced, can is she actually flying? Is she not? Is this place real? Is this not? It almost has that kind of Calvin and Hobbes-like quality to me, where it's like, it's sort of in our reality. It's sort of not in our reality, but that's not really the point also. If this existence between sort of non-reality and reality, it ends up becoming that feels more real than it actually, than something that's strictly realistic. I always think about the weirdly specific market, which like, of course that doesn't exist, but also like I've been to places that feel like that, you know? I wish there was um, a weirdly specific market here. <laughs> it sounds fun. I know, right? I know. I know, exactly. I'm just getting a cup of coffee. Um, and I think that like... Through all that stuff, this this book attains something that sort of feels like it feels like the actual magical property that it's trying to recreate. Yeah, and I, you've all mentioned fable, and and I thought too, just even from the very first line, like it's the first line is italicized, and it says, "This one time there was a girl who was convinced beyond all reason that she could fly." And to me, that's that's like a modern saying of like once upon a time there was, and it, it, right from the get-go, you're sort of, you're removed a bit from the story, and that's something that I kind of was thinking throughout, is who is actually the narrator? Because we know it's not Grack, and we know it's not Splendid Rent, so it's somebody else living in this city who's aware, part of the community, who is sort of observing things, and I just thought that was kind of, uh, so we're seeing it through the narrator's eyes, too, which is one more level of abstraction that creates this kind of dreamlike is it real? Is it not? Kind of feeling to it. Yeah, 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 totally. And this is, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of my favorite things, it's easy to miss, but it's actually a plural narrator. Like it's a, like it's a group thing. So if you look ah. at the end of page 30, I know it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss. I have my copy. I can just read this last paragraph. Everyone let her get away with everything, including believing that she flew. We all wished it were true. She was like a fairy tale superhero, but she was real. And we could say we knew her. Hmm. Yeah, I totally missed that. I was assuming the narrator was a single person. I, think I missed it too. We all missed the, that. So that was a very interesting point. It's really easy to miss. I mean, I've read this book a few times, so I don't think I got it on my first read either. And to me, that kind of makes the ending make more sense too. Like it's almost like this, almost of this sort of like Greek chorus, like this community who is commenting on these people and who is responding to what's happening. And so it's almost like a collective memory of this girl. You know, I almost think of it as sort of like, it takes on almost like an elegiac tone, you know? You know like, like you read, I mean, you know, she was like a fairy tale superhero, but she was real and we could say we knew her, which is like really sad, but I also think is kind of moving in a way. Another aspect of the book that I liked was uh, the fact that it was what a coworker and a former podcast host of ours, uh, Erica, would call a found family or a made family kind of yes. story. Eggs kind of swoops into this world, not connected to mm -hmm. anybody as far as we can tell. From the beginning of the story, it sounds like she just appears. 
and manages to connect with Grac, uh, like who reaches out to her and, and wants to connect with her because she seems so interesting. And then Eggs also encounters Splendid Wren and Splendid Wren and Grac end up forming with Eggs like a little family and taking care of each other. That's a type of story that always connects with me. Yeah, me too. That's also one of my favorite things about the book. I like that we don't really know where Eggs comes from. I feel like it would almost sort of be beside the point or if like if the author had made the choice to like give us more of a background of where she was before what she kind of how she grew up or whatever that I think would sort of again, it would kind of like miss the point of the book or it would be a different book anyway. I love that you brought up found family because one of my favorite relationships too in this book is between Grac and Splendid Wren. Like they both, they're almost kind of rivals in love and yet they're also brought together by the fact that they are bound by this person and they end up being eggs, I think, you know, sort of feels like found family with both Grac, Grac and Splendid Wren, but so do Grac and Splendid Wren with each other, even though they're both sort of competing for eggs' affections, mm-hmm. um, which feels very charming and real to me. And like a found family, like you said. I found Grack and Splendid Wren kind of foils uh, to each other. Like Grack exists very much in this urban environment. He's an entrepreneur. He has his hot dog cart. And Wren is this former punk who's into these like gentle pursuits like plants and knitting. They're opposites, but they, you know, come together and can support eggs in the ways she needs. Mm-hmm. Remind me a little bit. That, you know, there's a book and movie because of Win Dixie, and it's all about all these characters that form a, a found family because of this little dog that the that interacts with all of them in different ways. And in some ways, Eggs is like the Win Dixie character because if not for Eggs, Splendid Wren at this point was kind of a recluse; she wouldn't leave her apartment. And yet, because of Eggs, she left and she found Grack, and she had all of her saw and her bag of hammers and stuff. And so we got to do something. And and again, it 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 also kind of got crack out of his funk because he's jealous and uh, hurt that eggs was spending time with somebody else and yet the two of them were able to put their differences aside and do this really thoughtful beautiful thing for for eggs yeah yeah and at the end of the story eggs just disappears the last picture in the book kind of hints that she did end up somewhere south with the signs that are you know in what looks like spanish or portuguese Mm -hmm. or something like that that whole kind of arc of her just appearing, involving herself with these people or them involving themselves with her and then disappearing reminded me of the beloved Canadian television series Littlest Hobo, uh, where, you know, the German Shepherd dog who wandered around the countryside and just encountered people and helped them in some way and then was gone and never seen again. And uh, to me, that was kind of eggs was just swooped in out of nowhere changes kind of the landscape around her a bit um Mm -hmm. a lot of people paying attention to her you know the friendship the family and then she's gone and Mm -hmm. everyone wishes she would come back but you don't know she may never come back it may just be that little moment of time that you had and shared with her yeah you'll have to read the sequel Mm. yeah exactly (laughs) Dennis, you mentioned the uh, the illustration, the last illustration in the book, and I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the illustrations because the illustrations, I feel, are a, a huge part of this object, if I could use that term that we used before, this piece of art. And I found myself spending so much time just just looking at the, the pictures and seeing things uh, the second, third, fourth times, and uh, I felt like they were just a, a, a very... I don't know what the word 
detailed, intricate pairing with what was maybe more of a, a spare text where, you know, the, the, the text mm-hmm. is, is short and Sybil doesn't give us a lot in terms of backstory and, and stuff. She, she sure gives us what we need. And yet in the illustrations, you can just lose yourself in them. And, uh, you know, she has a style that kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, there's an, uh, an artist, uh, Jeff Darrow, who does very intricate art. And one of his probably most famous books is called Hard Boiled that was written by Frank Miller and illustrated by, by Jeff Darrow. And you could spend hours looking at the things going oh, yeah. on. And, <laughs> and it was only it was only a three issue thing. But it took three years to come out because Jeff Darrow was always like, oh, no, I, I, I do a little bit more work on the on the art and stuff. And Frank Miller is like, come on, you know, I'm ready to go. Here's the text. And uh, so, uh, um, so that, <laughs> that's what came to mind. And so I don't know what the illustrations, if they spoke to any of you as well. But I found myself going back to them more and more as, after reading it through once. I felt they did a good job of setting the tone, like there was the otherworldly tone of the book where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of like our world, but definitely different because we don't have buildings that look quite like this. We don't have this type of uh, activity going on in the background. Uh, we don't have flying girls as far as we know. So it, it de- definitely mm-hmm. helped with that tone for me. It's kind of set a, an image, but they suited the book well to me. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I always think of the, like the term maximalist, like maximalism when it comes to her art. You know, like you said, you can kind of look at it for the fourth or fifth time and be like, oh, right, there's this, there's this, there's this. Splendid Wren has a has a cereal, oat nuts that she's eating and like kind of growing out of it. Like, you know, like stuff like that is is like or like she actually has like hangers that are strewn up like by her kitchen. You know, you can just like read this book a bunch of times and you'll notice new stuff in the drawings each time. And I, yeah, I agree. I think it's very like effective in terms of like community, like the unreality. But it kind of feels like like four realities over from our current reality. I love the details here, like just you know little things, like a bike lock or um, like a, I, there was a baby in a backseat of a car. Just they're very very thoughtful and um, and well placed. I found them almost claustrophobic, which I think again, sets the tone for this book. It's just very, everything is very jammed in there. It's very jagged and urban. And it's her, it's, this is her life. This is the city that is, doesn't care about you, that she's just, she's just trying to survive in. Yeah, absolutely. And does anyone have any final thoughts about the book or things you'd like to bring up before we move on to the next section? I don't think so. Everyone listening, read this book. It's beautiful. (laughs) And it's a quick read. You can enjoy it and enjoy it a second time again, just to make sure you didn't miss any of the interesting stuff. Sorry, Dan. So I wasn't listening to you. I was too busy looking at this piece of art. It's the one that's uh, the telephone pole uh, where eggs is on it. And it's so intricate, all the different transformers and wires and things. And uh, it looks extremely dangerous. But sorry, you were saying something about uh, the book? I'm sorry. I was saying, did you have any final comments? <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> I guess that'll make that your final comment. On it that. is, yeah. Now we'll move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? So who has a good recommendation to go with? Am I going first? Someone uh, else? You can. You can. Sure. Yeah. If you'd like to. Yeah, we don't really have a, this part. We kind of just fly by the seat of our pants. So yeah, <laughs> if you're fly, ready to fly. Uh, oh! Right. Hey! Um, sure. Well, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking in contrast to the Malaximalist, I'll, I'll talk up uh, Manitoban, Jonathan Dick's Shelter Belts. Uh, it's a graphic novel just out, uh, out this year. It's mostly set 
in rural southern Manitoba. And I cannot think of a book actually that's maybe perhaps more different than this book, um, but one that I think is beautiful and that I love quite a bit. The art is very spare. It's very open. It's very conducive to sort of like the open landscape of the rural prairies. Um, it's mostly about the Russian Mennonite communities that are south of Winnipeg, which is where I'm from as well. And it's one of the most gorgeous and sad books I've read about that area and that those people for a long time, but also kind of hopeful in a certain way. It felt very quiet, felt very like frighted and weighty, but also um, really, really gorgeous. So Shelter Belts by Jonathan Dick, also a graphic novel. I also stuck with the graphic novel theme. And my recommendation this month is a book called Page by Page by Laura Lee Gulledge. And it's an interesting story. And again, it's, it reminded me a little bit about the girl who is convinced beyond all reason that she can fly and that it's aimed as a teen audience. But I feel like anyone really would enjoy it about a, a girl who's uprooted from Virginia and moves to Brooklyn with her parents and she feels lost, she feels alone. And so first week that she's in New York, she buys a sketchbook and starts sketching her sort of experiences and her anxieties and things. And so it's all about her making friends, again, found family and adjusting to circumstances and uh, just kind of coming into her own. So if you, and the art is, is beautifully integrated into the, uh, with the words. So that's my pick, Paige. And Paige is spelled P-A-I-G-E, the second page, because Paige's parents are both writers. So her name is Paige Turner. Wah, wah. Oh, so, anyway, very so, nice, very nice. Yeah, so that's my pick. Amazing, that sounds good. All right, I took a bit of a different approach for my recommendation in light of Sybil Lamb and in having Casey here, who I think hopefully it's fair to say one of your one of your goals is to promote writing by trans authors. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to recommend a book. That's um, fair to say. Okay, <laughs> I wanted to recommend a book by a trans author. This book doesn't need my recommendation. It got a lot of critical acclaim. Anytime you find a list of like. 10 books to read by trans authors, this is going to be on it. But I think it deserved all the um, acclaim it got. It's the book Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Um, oh, yeah, that looks great. Yeah. And as an aside, um, Sybil Lamb did do a book cover um, for Tori Peters. So there's that connection there. Um, the master, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this book is about um, a person named Ames who has detransitioned. Previously, Ames was Amy. And as Amy, Amy was in a relationship with another trans woman named Reese. And the two were very happy together, but there was drama, like there are in a lot of relationships, and they eventually broke up. And when we come to this book, we have Ames, and Ames is in a relationship with a cis woman named Katrina, who he accidentally knocks up. He doesn't think his sperm is viable anymore after being on hormones for many years, but it is. And he gets this woman pregnant and they're both kind of ambivalent about having a child together. Katrina is very focused on her career. Ames doesn't really see himself as a father, but Ames's ex, Reese, really wanted to be a mother. And he sort of concocts this idea that the three of them can raise this child together. So just a really interesting, unique concept. And it's very, very smart. Tori Peters really understands all of her characters extremely well. And I also, it's also just a really good read. It's fun. I heard um, someone describe it as dishy, uh, which I think is a good adjective to describe it. I think personally as a reader, I get kind of complacent seeing the same 
themes and characters and narratives and motifs written about over and over again. But this was just so, so fresh and so different from anything I've ever read. So that is uh, Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Yeah, excellent. I will second that recommendation. It's a great book. Everything you said about it is true. So my favorite element of this month's book was the found family dynamic that we had discussed earlier and the way the protagonists were able to accept each other with all of their individual quirks intact. A couple of years ago, we had discussed A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers on the podcast, which has a similar dynamic. And this month, I'm going to recommend the sequel to that book titled A Closed and Common Orbit. While this book follows a couple of characters from the previous book, it stands by itself, so you don't need to have read Small Angry Planet to enjoy it. The description is... Lovelace was once merely a ship's artificial intelligence. When she wakes up in a new body following a total system shutdown and reboot, she has to start over in a synthetic body in a world where her kind are illegal. She's never felt so alone, but she's not alone, not really. Pepper, one of the engineers who risked life and limb to reinstall Lovelace, is determined to help her adjust to her new world. Because Pepper knows a thing or two about starting over, together Pepper and Lovey will discover that, huge as the galaxy may be, it's anything but empty. Becky Chambers' writing is lovely, her characters have a lot of depth, and her universe is easy to get lost in. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panelists talk about a word or phrase that has been on our minds lately. Anyone got a good word to start with? I'm afraid that my word this month might be a little too much on the nose, especially because last month, Dennis, you and I had the exact same word. It's never happened before. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. If someone else has it, well, that's just the, the magic of uh, podcasting. My word mm-hmm. is pride. Oh, okay. It's just so a it's a, it's a uh, you know, it's a word that um, its meaning has changed over the years. Originally, it maybe wasn't such a great word. It, it meant, uh, you know, inordinate self-esteem or an unreasonable conceit of superiority. And in fact, capital P pride was one of the original seven deadly sins. But over time, the words being evolved and it became sort of this idea that, no, if you're feeling you know, good about yourselves and it's uh, something that you are, well, I can't say you're proud of with pride, but uh, it, it evolves. But in, in modern times, the word has come to be associated with uh, June and, and Pride Month. And that started after the Stonewall riots in 1969, June 28th in New York, in which some 400 people protested police raid of the establishment. So the following year, a lot of in the media and just in the, in the culture, the terms of pride was attached to the demonstrations and the movement. But very interestingly, just before it was associated with that, in the 1960s, the term pride was associated with black pride and with uh, Martin Luther King and um, I'm just waiting for Toby and and Dennis to roll their eyes uh, when I say that my favorite band, U2, uh, <laughs> has a song called Pride. And uh, <laughs> the lyrics at the end say, early morning, April 4th, which nitpickers will say he wasn't shot in the morning, he was shot in the evening. It should be early evening, April 4th. But, you know, tell Bono that. Early morning, April 4th, a shot rings out in the Memphis sky. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your pride. And so just in closing... I just wanted to draw attention to the library did a Reader's Salon blog post for Pride Month just recently, and I will put a link in our notes for it. It's uh, linked in that article. There's a really good article by Meg Metcalf, who is the Women's Gender and LGBTQ 
plus studies librarian at the Library of Congress that gives a much more fulsome history of the word pride and and how it's used. And that blog post also has a really good list of other days throughout the year that we may want to remember or celebrate related to what we now the city are calling 2SLGBTQQIA+. So just like the word pride, the acronym is also evolving and will continue to evolve. So that's my word, pride. Glad no one else picked it. My word is very different from your word, and I doubt anyone has chosen this word either. So I discovered this word in a book I recently read. The book was The Sentence by Louise Erdrich, which is a book for book lovers. It's it's full of book recommendations. The main character works in a bookstore, and so um, you get these book recommendations sprinkled in. And Erdrich also includes um, a list at the end of recommended reads, which, by the way, include a couple of my favorites, Birds of America by Laurie Moore is on there, and also All My Puny Sorrows um, by Miriam Caves, which we'll be talking about next month. Um, so that is very exciting to see, the, to see those books there. But the word I wanted to talk about was a word I discovered in the sentence, and that is the word tachyothes. It could be cacoets, it could be cacoawethes. Um, I couldn't find a consistent pronunciation guide, pronunciation for it. But it kind of fits in with the book this month because it means an irresistible urge to do something inadvisable. And it comes from the mm -hmm. Latin, comes via Latin from Greek. Cacos is bad and ethos is disposition. So bad disposition. So again, that's cacoethes, an irresistible urge to do something inadvisable. That's a word we need to hang on to. Yeah. No kidding. How do I spell that? That's great. I'm going to start um, using it. C-A-C-O-E-T-H-E-S. Amazing. Thank you very much. Yeah. When I see that in your next book, I will. Uh... <laughs> exactly. You know, look, I'll thank you in the acknowledgement. No problem. Well, Easter egg. Uh-huh. Did you have a word that you wanted to share, Casey? Yeah. My word is kismet. This is a word that I've loved for a very, very long time. Kismet, it came into English from Turkish two centuries ago, where it was a synonym for fate. And I like thinking of the word kismet, uh, especially when contrasted with the term serendipity. So kismet tends to mean like something that was sort of meant to be, that was pre-fated, that was destiny. And it's kind of like a, like a very fortunate coincidence. I think it's usually used in a positive sense of the word. But I like thinking about it in contrast to words like coincidence or serendipity which both to me sort of connote like something a little more, what's the word, that connotes something a little more mundane, like, oh, like coincidences happen, sometimes serendipity happens and it's great. But kismet is something more like godly, if I can use that term, or something that is kind of like comes, kind of comes crashing out of the heavens and makes an event occur. And I also just love that because of how it sounds. It sounds very like, it doesn't sound like something like the mundanity that you would, is implied with a term like coincidence or serendipity. So my word is kismet. That is a good word. So I just finished reading uh, Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson this month and having fun with all of the nautical terms that were in there. One of the things that I find amusing about the English language is the disconnect between the spelling of a word and its pronunciation. And this is really apparent with my word of this month, bosun. I mean, it's pronounced bosun and you could spell it B-O-S-U-N, but in Treasure Island and most other sources, it's spelled B-O-A-T-S-W-A-I-N. You'd think it would be pronounced boatswain, but it's bosun. Hmm. 
Uh, it derives from the Old English Batswagen, uh, where bat means boat and swagen or swain means a young man or apprentice. The bosun is essentially the deck crew foreman. They're responsible for certain sh signals on the ship, too, uh, using a special two-tone whistle. And uh, even if you haven't heard an actual bosun's whistle or bosun's pipe, you may have heard the tones used because they uh, use the patterns of the bosun's whistle on Star Trek episodes whenever they would have, like, announcements to the crew or something like that, and they'd have that little two-tone kind of sound. That's the bosun's whistle. There are other nautical terms that do the weird pronunciation too, like forecastle being pronounced foxel, but bosun's the one that always catches my eye and my inner ear. I thought that was boatswain. I've, that's how I always say it in my head. I know. Me too. Me too. I had no idea it was pronounced that way. And, you know, I think we're all readers and we've all probably come across the situations, right, where we've seen a word in print and we kind of pronounce it in our head. And then sometimes we get caught out where we use the word and it's totally not pronounced right. You know that a book has gone beyond its uh, region, so to speak, when uh, in a sequel, the author makes a point of correcting the pronunciation. There was a, an Agatha Christie book where uh, she had someone do the same thing with Poirot's name. Uh, pronounce it Poirot, which is the name I, the way I pronounced it in my head when I was a kid, and then corrected the person in the story so that readers would know how to pronounce it. <laughs> so unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers, and thanks again to our special guest, Casey Plett. For next month, we're going to read and discuss All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Toes. Elf and Yoli are two smart, loving sisters leading very different lives. Elfrida is a renowned pianist, wealthy and happily married. Her younger sister, Yolandi, is a writer, divorced, broke, and forever chasing after the wrong man in her search for true love. But Elf is struggling with her demons, and Yoli doesn't know what to do. Elf wants to die, and wants Yoli to help her. Yoli desperately wants her sister to live. Three weeks before her highly anticipated international tour, Elf lands in the hospital after her latest suicide attempt. There's doubt that she will be well in time, but Elf doesn't seem to care. As the bounds of the sisters' love for each other are tested, Yuli faces a decision that will forever change her life and Elf's. A multi-award-winning, critically acclaimed masterpiece, All My Puny Sorrows shows Toes at the height of her craft, making you smile while she breaks your heart. As you can tell from the description, this book will deal a lot with suicide and other heavy topics, so if you're not in the right frame of mind for that kind of story, we'll understand if you skip this one. But if you are interested, we hope you join us for the conversation. That's such a good book. It's one of my favorite books. It's, it is extraordinarily sad. It's one of the few, I think it's the only book that's made me really kind of like, you know, body sob cry, but it is so, so good. Her last name is pronounced Taves, by the way. Ah, uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward, looking forward to, forward that to, one. A, to re reading yeah, that one. It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. I am expecting to cry, though. <laughs> Have any weirdly specific comments or book suggestions? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us too. And until next time, make sure you find Time, time, to, time read. to Read. Time to Read.